Been watching the news lately? <laughs> oh, man, what a mess, right? And uh, it takes a toll, I think, on the soul of, of the nation in many ways. Just weariness. I felt it. You felt it. But one of the things that's interesting, you know, we've been in this, this series in the book of Acts for four summers. And uh, one of the things that's so interesting, I, I've been studying through the week and thinking about um, our, our message today. And uh, I'm watching the news, and all of a sudden I just, what I had read throughout the week all of a sudden just took the form of what I was seeing on TV. God just sort of said, do you see what's happening right there? That's what happened in your text. And I'm going, oh my goodness. Today in our story, we're going to see something that looks very familiar to what you're seeing on television. And that is uh, a mob scene, mob mentality, uh, bloodlust, uh, anger that wants murder, uh, noise people can't hear. And unfortunately, the subject in, in, in uh, question here, the one that's, that they're going after is the Apostle Paul. And we're going to get into to that in just a minute. But, you know, can I just say, you know, the thing that my heart gets weary over is that um, the reality is troubles won't end. There's always going to be a bad cop, a bad pastor. There's always going to be a, a, an awful situation, an awful scenario, because we live in a fallen world full of sinful people. We don't have a perfect church, right? Because it's full of us, sinful people. And we need God and we need his grace. And even though at times it feels like we despair, he is with us and he loves us. Amen? Remember last week we talked about uh, the fact that Paul had been in Caesarea. He had been at uh, Philip's house. We remember Philip from the New Testament story. What an incredible guy. He had been... Um, kind of voted to be one of the seven that cared for the Hellenist widows and, and those families. And so he was a leader. And who knew that he was also an evangelist and a great preacher. And uh, so he evangelizes Samaria. He gets to, to witness to the Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, God's using him in amazing ways. Well, Paul is now coming and staying in his home with his crew. And they're, they're staying in, in Caesarea uh, the text tells us that he's got, that uh, Philip's got four daughters that are uh, prophet, prophetesses. I don't know how, that's hard to say. Um, but they, they've got all these different prophets there in the house. They're, they're all telling Paul to not go where? Don't go to Jerusalem. Don't do it, Paul. Why would you go to Jerusalem? Even Paul's traveling companions, Luke included, says we tried and tried to tell Paul, don't go to Jerusalem but he wouldn't have it, he wouldn't see it. He continued uh, on his trip. And so Paul says, or Luke says of the journey, we got ready and we went up to Jerusalem. And it brings us to our text this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn over to Acts 21. I will tell you, we got kind of a long text today, so I'm not gonna read the whole thing in the front. We're just gonna take it piece by piece uh, through, through the message today. And uh, also tell you this, the text is a little more descriptive than it is prescriptive. But God in his goodness never lets his word return void, right? So we learn from whatever God is showing us today. There's some amazing things that we can learn. Let's, let's look at the word together. Acts 21 verse 16 says, And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us. 
bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple, with whom we should lodge. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And we're going to pause right there for a moment. Would you pray with me for our message today? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the privilege to study it and learn even contextually what's going on in this place. And um, it helps us to understand what you were doing in that moment and how similar it is to the moments that we live today. So God, in your grace, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would lead us to all truth today in your word. God, would you increase in this time and help me to decrease, Lord. And Father, would you be with our country as we hurt, we're grieving for the situation we are in. People of color are afraid in many ways. And God, we, we just want to love you. We want to love all people. And we want to be a healing place. Lord, would you help us today to learn from your word what you're saying to us today about our lives and how we walk with you. In Jesus' precious name, amen. So the first section here, we've got three different sections I want us to look at through these texts. The first one is what I'm calling receiving Paul and celebrating God. See, Paul had done quite a bit. We've been studying about it, right? He, he, uh, this trip, even this trip alone, where he'd gone around the Aegean Sea and he's gone to all these Macedonian churches and he wants to bring an offering to the church in Jerusalem. Right? He's, he cares about this church in Jerusalem and he wants to be a blessing. And so he's kind of a big deal, Paul. He, he's, he's, he's an amazing man of God, and God is using him in special, incredible ways. Um, but when he gets to meet with uh, James, oh, I love this part, he just says, let's give glory to God. And, and he, he realizes it's all God doing the work. So uh, Paul's received. He goes from Caesarea, from Philip's house, and a group of people from Philip's house, some disciples around Philip and around his church, uh, take Paul to Jerusalem. Now, it's 65 miles as a crow flies from Caesarea to Jerusalem, 85 miles if you're on today's roads. They may be on horseback, they may be walking, I'm not sure, but it's not across the street, right? Can you imagine you met somebody for one night and they hung out with you? Hey, oh, you got to go 85 miles? Cool, let me, I'll go with you. That's kind of a big deal. I couldn't help but notice in this text something that is so beautiful in the body of Christ. And I, and I know you've experienced it. I hope you have. And that is the connectedness of the body of Christ. I've been in different places around the world where culture is completely different than mine. Language is different than mine. Color of skin is different than mine. Everything is different. But we both share the spirit of God and we have everything in common. Do you know what I'm talking about? This connectedness of the body of Christ. I couldn't help but read this and think, these disciples from Caesarea take Paul to Nason's house. They're loving him. They're caring for him. What a beautiful, beautiful thing. You know, I said this before, but I have more in common with an Iraqi uh, Christian who knows Jesus with the Spirit of God in his heart and life than I do with my next door neighbor waving an American flag that doesn't know Jesus. 
I will spend eternity with those who know Christ, right? We have more in common in that regard, and so the connectedness of the body of Christ is so beautiful to me, and I love that aspect of our story. Uh, they're not connected in sort of an interest. Well, we all, we all ride Harleys together, or we, whatever the case may be. They're not, they're not connected in, in, in race or culture specifically. They're connected by the blood of Jesus. I want to I share this verse with us sort of as a, a one just to kind of cover over the, the conversation today. This is from Paul in Galatians 3.28, and I think it's fitting for what we're going to talk about. Paul says, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, speaking of those that know Christ. And if you are Christ, he says, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. There's no black, brown, white. There's no Republican, Democrat, right? If we know Jesus, we are one in him. And so we're going to get into this conversation about the fact that really we see the church is sort of broken into two. It's broken into sort of a, a Gentile church and broken into a Jewish church. And there's some differences. They're trying to reconcile how do we do this together. We've always followed the law. And Paul, sounds like you haven't been. How do we deal with this? And so that's what we're going to look at some, some today. So Nason is an early disciple, the text tells us. This is the place where Paul is going to stay. Uh, there's a good chance that Nason might have been at Pentecost. The text tells us he's originally from Cyprus, but there's a good chance that maybe he was at Pentecost. And remember Pentecost, in Acts 2, uh, the Spirit falls. Peter preaches this amazing message. 3,000 people come to know Jesus as their Savior. There's a good chance Nason was, was in that crowd, and maybe he just stayed in Jerusalem instead of going back to, to Cyprus. I don't know, but the text tells us he was an early disciple, and he's been a part of the Jerusalem church. And so they stay with Nason, and the interesting thing is it says that Paul and his team were received warmly. They were kind to Paul. And I, I promise you, uh, those of you who have received both kinds of welcomes, <laughs> you know the difference in the two. This was an important one to be warm, because this is the last time Paul's going to feel the fellowship of the church in someone's home. This is the last time Paul's going to get to, to worship in this way and, and feel received in this way because the majority of the rest of uh, Acts is going to be us following him in prison. So it's important that he, he meets this moment with kindness. This is kind of the calm before the storm as he walks into, not the unknown, remember, but the known of what's going to happen to him in Jerusalem. So this is a special moment. This is a, a kind gesture from the body of Christ. Again, the connectedness of the body, the beauty of stay in my home. Let us care for you. Let us feed you. That is the church. That is the beauty of the connectedness of the church. And so what, the, what do they do? They go to James. A lot of people think that the leader of the early church was Peter, Catholics especially, right? He was the pastor and leader of the early church. No, it was James. James was the, the leader of the early church. In fact, we know that in uh, the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. They come, they have this discussion. James makes the decision. James sort of ends the thing out. Who does Paul go to see now in, in Acts 21? James. James is the leader of the church. And so they come together and they want to celebrate what God is doing. Acts 21 verse 19. Look, it says, after greeting them, this is Paul. He's greeting all the James and the elders. He related one by one the things that God had done 
among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. So Paul's sharing, hey, I got to tell you guys what is going on. You're not going to believe what happened in Ephesus, man. There was a crowd full. I mean, just imagine all the stories. Oh, yeah, I got my butt kicked over there, no question. Woo! Barely could get up. But God did this. Right? All these different things that he's sharing, this story of what God is doing. And Paul's not taking credit. Paul knows that everything he has done has been by the grace of God. That God is responsible for, for, for what's happened, right? Even here, as I look at you, I go, it's God. There's not one thing that our, our team, our elders, we can't take credit for one thing because everything God is doing, has done, and will do is God's. It's his church. And it's so beautiful to watch what he does and what he is doing. This is what Paul says. He says, you're not going to believe this, guys. You won't believe there was a kid that fell asleep in my message down to the third floor. And God raised him. I didn't. I can't do that. But God can. Can you imagine the stories? This beautiful moment, just sharing. And I want you to notice something that you might miss otherwise. It says when he shares what God was doing, what did they do? They glorified God, right? It says they glorified God. Now, why is that important? Well, I think it's important because this is a different response than what they had at the Jerusalem Council. Look with me, Acts 15, verse 12. Verse 12 says, and all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Is that a different response? Is that a different reception? What does that say? It says God in his grace is growing the Jerusalem church and the Jerusalem elders and leaders to understand grace, to understand that God loves all people, right? It is the heart of God that all people come to repentance, Peter says. That's God's heart. That's what he wants. And so the, the Jerusalem elders are beginning to see that. They've been steeped in tr Jewish tradition. They've been steeped in being God's people. And now this door is opening to the Gentiles, and they're having to go, oh, yeah, God loves all people, and he wants all people to come to repentance, and we can celebrate with you, Paul. And then James goes, well, you know what? God's doing something over here, too, Paul. He, he's doing amazing things. In fact, thousands, and I, there's no telling how big the church in Jerusalem was, 100,000. It could have been huge at this point. Thousands have believed, but they're all, he says, zealous for the law. Well, that, that's going to cause some trouble, right? Acts 21, verse 21. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles. Paul, you teach them to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. <laughs> what then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, 
We have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. That all comes from the Jerusalem Council, you remember, in Acts 15. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the, offspring, and the offering presented for each one of them. So James says to Paul, listen, man, I'm glad you're here. <laughs> Praise God for what he's been doing in your ministry, but you're not super popular here in Jerusalem. People think you're crazy. People think you have left the reservation and that you don't care about our ways and our customs and our traditions. They're saying you forsake Moses and that you don't even want our children to be circumcised. What in the world, Paul? What are we going to do? It's just an incredible moment. Well, the reality is people have been given bad information. There's been this narrative that's been created, and now Paul represents that narrative. Has, has that ever happened in your life? Or have you ever created that narrative? No, 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 not me. <laughs> Do you know what I'm talking about? You hear something about somebody, and then all of a sudden, you might add to that story until all of a sudden, in your mind, this is just not a good person. Or maybe it's been said of you. I've definitely experienced that. People begin to think certain things of me, and they begin to create a narrative. You know, before we started our, uh, South City, a good friend of mine was with a group of pastors, and and I was the topic of conversation. And it wasn't a good, positive uh, conversation. They, they were creating a narrative that wasn't true about me and about what we might do and what we might become. And, and my friend said, he just sat there listening to this with his jaw kind of slack and like, I can't believe these guys are saying this. this none of these things are true. And so he stood up and said, guys, it's not true. None of these things are true. And of course, now as we've been going, these are now my friends and they're going, Sorry. We, we do this sometimes, don't we? In our minds, we begin to create things that are not true. And this is exactly what has happened with Paul. He hasn't forsaken Moses. He hasn't said these things. This section of the message I've called submission and optics. Submission and optics. Paul never said these things. Did he? Did Paul ever say, don't circumcise your children? No. Did Paul ever say we need to forsake Moses and the law? No. Here is what Paul actually did say. He wanted to make clarity about what it, what it means to be saved. All right, let's look in Galatians chapter 5, verse 6. This is what Paul did say. He said, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. Galatians 6.15, he says, For neither circumcision counts for anything nor, circum nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. What's Paul saying? He's going, it doesn't matter if you're circumcised or if you're not. What matters is if your heart is circumcised. What matters is if you're a new creation. Do you know Jesus? Following rules won't get you to heaven is what he's saying. Following our customs doesn't do it. Only receiving Jesus is the only way to heaven. That's it. We've placed our trust in these rules instead of the Messiah. This is what Paul was saying. Paul never said to, to, uh, that you, don't, you should stop obeying the law. In fact, it's real clear, Paul was a Jew. 
Ding, ding, ding. That's like the most understated reality, right? Paul was a Jew. Let me remind you of a few things that we've studied even in our series. You remember back in Acts 16, uh, he's with his protege, Timothy. And they're going into the synagogues. Well, Paul realizes that Timothy's father is a Jew. And by Jewish law, Timothy needs to be circumcised. Not just to follow the law, but in order to remove the obstacles from the people they're trying to tell about the Messiah. So if Timothy was never going into the synagogues and never had to worry about that, he wouldn't need to be circumcised. But, but Paul says, listen, since we're going to minister to Jews, you need to follow the law. Paul is, is obedient to the law in that regard so that he can do ministry to people of Jewish faith. You remember a little bit later in Acts 18, where we, in, at Centrea, Paul, it says that Paul took a vow and he cut his hair. Remember that? Did he just do that for fun? No, he's a Jew. He's following uh, a vow from Numbers 6. It's a Nazarite vow. We're going to get into that in just a minute. But he's following this vow because he's, he's made a promise to God. And it's, it's something, part of his Jewish Christian faith. What about the fact that he's in this desperate race in our conversation just in the last several weeks to get to Jerusalem. Why? Why does he want to get to Jerusalem? Because of Pentecost. It's, it's obvious Paul is a Jew. And so Paul is, is still in many ways uh, following some of the customs and some of those uh, rules that he's grown up with his whole life. He's not done away with the Jewish faith or the law or Moses. So that's important to remember. You know, one of the big things that we have to see, and I mentioned this earlier, is the big issue is that there are two churches represented in our text. The Jewish mainly church, uh, in a lot of tradition of Jewish uh, law, that is, that it, just like what I'm talking about, and then the Gentile church that Paul has been leading in this grace-oriented thing. Paul's saying, it doesn't matter if you're circumcised or uncircumcised. It's, that's that's kind of clashing now that Paul is in Jerusalem, right? And what's interesting is we see the two leaders of these two churches, James, who leads the Jerusalem church, and Paul, who's been leading the churches uh, in, in the Gentile territory. We also see, which is interesting in the text, the fruit of their ministry. So Paul is sitting there, and behind Paul or next to Paul are these seven, eight, nine guys that represent his ministry around the Macedonian churches, which is a beautiful thing. He gets to say, guys, you won't believe what God's doing. In fact, these guys come from the Ephesian church. These guys come from over here. These guys come from that church. They're fruit of what God has been doing in Paul's ministry. James has the same thing. He looks back and he's got all these brothers, these elders next to him. And he's able to go, yeah, look what God's been doing here too. God is at work in both places, but there is some friction. So James thinks he has a solution to Paul's unpopularity, his lack of popularity in Jerusalem. He says, all right, here's the deal. Follow me. Do what I tell you. There's four guys we've got, right? They're under a vow. Now, what he's talking about is, is called a Nazarite vow. It's the same thing Paul did in Centrea. We find it in number six. It means that they're, they're not going to eat um, grapes or drink wine. And, and at the end of the, uh, of the vow of 30 days, they're going to go to the temple and they're going to make a, a sacrifice, an animal sacrifice, a food and drink sacrifice, and a hair sacrifice. So you can see I made one this morning of the, uh, that was a joke. Um, 
So they shave their head. And they take the hair with all these sacrifices and they, they burn them as a part of their offering. That's called a Nazarite vow. It's a 30-day vow. So Paul probably didn't get in on this 30-day vow with these four guys, but he could help them finish it up. And so James says, why don't you go and, by the way, pay the expenses for them to do that, which could have been very costly. But there's another vow that, that might be at play here. We don't know for sure. But in Numbers 19, there's a vow that talks about if you're a Jew and you go to a foreign land, when you come back, you need to uh, purify yourself in the temple. And so what you had to do is you had to go purify yourself on the third day of a seven-day vow and on the seventh day. So it's possible that Paul here has been in all these foreign territories, and, and James is saying, hey, go do the Numbers 19 vow and go, go purify yourself while these guys are finishing up their Nazarite vow. We, we don't know for sure, but the thing that is important to see is Paul's willingness to submit to James. You see that? There's not a verse in here that says Paul questioned what James suggested. There's not a section here that says Paul had another suggestion. Well, let's, let's not do that, but how about we do this? Paul just obeyed, didn't he? It's called submission. Paul submitted himself to James and the Jerusalem elders. It's not the first time we've seen him do this. He did it at the uh, Jerusalem council as well. You see, I want to ask this question of, of all of us this morning. Who in your life are you submissive to? Is there somebody in your life that you submit to? Submission is not a popular word right now, right? We don't really value authority in our lives, and we're seeing it playing out on the news. A lot of people that don't value authority or, or even human life. But let me just tell you, we are all under authority. We've talked about this. We are all under authority, and it is God's design that we submit even to one another. Ephesians 5, 21 says, about the body of Christ, submit one to another, because this pleases God. Who in your life are you submissive to? Kids, are you submissive to your parents? You should be. Uh, adults, are you submissive to your parents? You should be. We, we don't stop being, you know, children of our parents. We should continue to, to submit and love and honor them in that way. Your boss, are you submissive to your boss? Scripture says that's a good thing to do. Your spouse, your city group, people that you walk life together with, what a great group of people to kind of just humble yourself and go, guys, I'm struggling through something, will you help me? Your city group leader, what a great person or couple to come to and go, here's my situation, what do you think I should do? Have you ever done that? Your, your elders, these are people that we can submit our lives to and say, what should I do? Would you give me some godly wisdom? And then take it. You know, if it's not something that disobeys God's word and doesn't sound, sound crazy and the spirit of God confirms it in your heart, you go, that does sound like a good thing. I'm going to do that. That's called submission. It is a good thing to find yourself submitted to people. Paul shows us that a life lived for Jesus. If you're going to live a life lived for Jesus, it's going to be one of submission. It's, it's simple. Jesus even showed us a life of submission to the Father. So Paul here, he's obedient to follow through with what James has suggested, even though it almost costs him his life. Let's look at the last section of our text this morning, Acts 21, starting at verse 27. It says, when the seven days were almost completed, speaking of the Nazarite 19 vow most likely here, when those seven days were completed, 
the Jews from Asia, seeing him, talking about Paul, in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and he has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. When all the city was stirred up, the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. That's the Roman guard at the temple. He at once, speaking of the leader of the Roman guard, he at once took soldiers and centurion, uh, centurions and ran down to them. And when they, the people beating up Paul, saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired, uh, this is the leader of the, the Roman army here, he inquired who Paul was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another, just mass confusion. And he could not learn the facts because of the uproar. And he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. This final section of the message I've called lies and lynching. Because that's what we see Again, people have created a narrative, and now it's going to lead to something, could lead to someone's death. Paul is following through with what James said. I'm, I'm going to go to the temple. I'm going to do this vow. I'm going to help these four guys. And it's most likely on the seventh day of the, the Numbers 19 vow, most likely, that Paul is there cleansing himself, purifying himself in the temple on the seventh day, which is what you're supposed to do. And he's recognized, the text says, by Asian uh, Jews. Now, these guys come from the Ephesian church. Do you remember the thing about the Ephesian synagogue? Paul got to teach in the synagogue in Ephesus for three months. You remember that? He had never had the privilege of teaching that long in the synagogue. So if these Jews came from that synagogue, they sure would have recognized Paul. They sure would have known, oh, this is the guy that's, that's converted all these people. They sure would have known this is the guy causing all the trouble. They sure would have known about the theater. This is, they were looking for Paul, and if they could have found him, they would have killed him in Ephesus. There he is right there in the temple. They, they, they saw him, and they knew that he was the one that was causing, in their minds, all this trouble. And so they grab Paul, and they start spreading lies. Now, what's interesting, the lies that they spread about Paul are the exact same lies that the Sanhedrin uh, spread and said about Stephen. Same exact ones. They said, he's speaking against our people, he's speaking against our law, and he's speaking against our temple. The same, the same ones. But what did they do with Stephen? They rushed at him and they stoned him and they killed him right there. So now that they're saying these are the same things this guy's doing, man, the people are going nuts. They're, they're, the noise, the chaos, the, the desire for revenge, how do you, you don't dare come in here and do that, right? And you get this sense. Now you can see why I was watching the news going, wow, this is playing out in front of me. Maybe what, he, what happened for Paul. So one of the things that I think is good for us to recognize is, is something, uh, kind of a construction of the temple. 
in the temple is there's different sections where different people can, are allowed to go. The outside section is, is a section for foreigners. So people like you and me who weren't Jewish could go to an outside section and, and, and see part of the temple. And then we would come up to a wall. It was about four and a half feet tall. It was stone. And it had uh, signs on it all the way around. And past that wall would go into the court of women. And then you could go into the court of men and priests. But foreigners do not pass that wall. In fact, this is what it said in both Greek and Latin on that wall. So if anybody from a foreign country came up to that wall, they could read in multiple places in Greek or Latin this warning. No foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the temple and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. We know it said that because the historian Josephus tells us that was the warning. And they've even found parts of uh, those signs in antiquity. They found them. So we know it was there. So what's interesting is the Romans had taken away capital punishment from the Jews. You're not supposed to kill people, Jews, except for this. This is the one place where the Jews could actually kill somebody if they went past this wall. Also, an interesting piece that I think is kind of interesting, especially now in the, in the racially charged climate that we're in, Paul preaches against uh, unity in the body of Christ, regardless of color or culture, in Ephesians 2, right? And now he has this beautiful verse that says that Christ has torn down the dividing wall, right? Remember that? This is the dividing wall in the temple. This is what Paul's talking about. This is the actual dividing wall that separates foreigners from Jews. Acts 21, 30 says, then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple and at once the gates were shut. I think it's also important for us to realize and see in the book of Acts, this is the last scene at the temple. This is the last time we're gonna be in the temple in the story of the church in the book of Acts. Another interesting and, and sad possibility is that um, you know, it says in our text here in verse 30, and at once the gates were shut. A lot of theologians believe that's not just a historical part of the story, but that was symbolic of the Jewish people and the Jewish faith officially closing the door to the gospel of Jesus. And sadly, for centuries and centuries, we have seen that to be the case. So this crazy mob is, is beating Paul. They're beating him down and they actually want to hang him. They want to kill him. And they're moving towards that. And they think they have a right to because of, uh, they, the guy said, these Asian Jews have said, he brought somebody in the temple. Had he brought somebody in the temple? Luke says, no. Luke says they did this because they saw Trophimus. Remember Trophimus, who also was from Ephesus? They saw Trophimus in the city with Paul and they assumed that Paul brought him into the temple. Paul hadn't done that. So this is, again, a lie. This is a, uh, this is a lie. And now they want to lynch him. So this crazy mob, they're beating him. Um, and you might remember, I mentioned this in a message a while back, Romans hate riots. They hate him. Like if there's one thing that the Romans don't want to see happen, it is a riot. And at the temple, they had built this, this palace uh, called the Antonio Fortress. And it, it was huge. It was right on the temple grounds, and it had a 100-foot um, 
like tower that a guard could watch over the entire temple. So as soon as this skirmish started and they started beating Paul, they saw it and they, they took action and they sent a lot of people. The head officer at this time, we know this from Acts 23, is a guy by the name of Claudius Lysias. He was in charge of keeping the peace at the temple. He had a thousand soldiers at his uh, command. But the text tells us, just reading from the text, that he takes with him centurions s. Well, a centurion has at his disposable, disposal 100 soldiers. So if they're plural centurions, there's at least 200 soldiers going towards this skirmish, right? So this is a large Roman uh, pouring out of soldiers down into the fight. And they're beating Paul. But as soon as they see the soldiers, they stop. Because here, here they come with, with swords. They get there. And they actually rescue Paul. And this isn't the first time that the Romans have rescued Paul. Remember in our study, Gallio? Uh, there's been many times that the Romans have rescued Paul, and it's going to happen again. Acts 21, 32 through 36, as we uh, finish up here. It says, he at once took soldiers, speaking of Claudius Lysias, the, the leader of the Roman guard at the temple. He himself took soldiers and centurions meaning at least 200 soldiers, and ran down to them. And they saw the tribune of the soldiers, and they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested Paul and ordered him to be bound with two chains. By the way, can I just say, what did Agabus say last week? You remember the prophecy of Agabus? And Agabus wanted to get his point across. You remember this? And so he puts on a little drama. And he gets in front of the crowd, and he goes, hey, he takes Paul's belt and he wraps his own hands and he goes down and he wraps his own feet and he's being very dramatic and very visual. Whoever owns this belt, this is gonna happen in Jerusalem. Remember that? Guess what's just happened? Agabus' prophecy has just come true and they have bound Paul with two chains, assumingly the hands and the feet just as Agabus had portrayed and prophesied. So Claudius inquires here, who, who are you, Paul? What have you done? Why do these people hate you so much? And some in the crowd were shouting one thing and some another because uh, he, he couldn't learn the facts. He couldn't hear because of the uproar. So he said, take Paul into the barracks. And so they come to the steps that lead up to the barracks of the Antonio Fortress. And the soldiers actually have to carry Paul up the steps. It says because of the violence of the mob, which means either Paul's been beaten to a pulp and he can't walk or his feet are bound and he can't walk. Either way, the soldiers carry him up the steps into the barracks. For the mob of the people followed crying out, away with him, away with him. Here's what's interesting in this moment. As they shout out away with him, the irony, the parallel is, is definitely not lost on Luke. That it's this exact same spot where Paul stands with Claudius, it's where Jesus stood with Pontius Pilate. It's the exact same spot where the people cried out for Jesus and they said the exact same thing. Look with me, John 19 15, as the people cried against Jesus, and they cried out what? Away with him, 
Away with him. Crucify him. What's so interesting about this study, and like I said, it's, it's not lost. The parallelism is not lost on Luke. I think he really wants us to see that Paul is sort of taking a very similar course as Jesus. Many people told Jesus not to go to Jerusalem. Peter said, no, Lord, no, Lord. Remember, Jesus said, get thee behind me, Satan. I've got to go. I've got to be about my father's business. All Paul's friends, they said, don't go to Jerusalem. Jesus went through five trials. Paul goes through five trials. Paul was committed to go to Jerusalem, just as Jesus was. See, the difference is Jesus' sacrifice and his death for us was redemptive. It changed our hearts. It changed the world. Paul's sacrifice, Paul's obedience wasn't redemptive, but it was submissive. His heart was to lead people to know that redemption of Jesus. And so he follows God's will, even in a difficult moment, to Jerusalem. You might ask as we finish up, why in the world would Paul do this? Why would he go to Jerusalem when he knew this was going to happen? I mean, just a few days ago, a week ago, they said, this is going to happen. And here, here it is, Paul. We told you. I mean, come on. Why would you do this? Number one, because he wanted to follow God's will. He wanted to be about his father's business just as Jesus had. He wanted to do God's will regardless of what it meant for him. Remember what he told them? He said, why are you crying and breaking my heart? I'm ready to die for Christ. I'm ready to be beaten. I'm ready to be imprisoned. I'm ready to even die in Jerusalem if that's what God's will is. He was following the will of God. And the other reason is because he wanted people to know Jesus. And I'm convicted when I read Paul's heart for people. I'm blown away. And I go, God, give me that heart. Paul said, he, he, he's speaking to the Lord. He says, God, if I could be accursed, which means, Lord, if you would send me to hell so that you would save my brothers and that you would save people, that would be fine with me. I've never said that. Can you imagine? He loved people so much that that was his heart. In fact, he says this in 1 Corinthians 9 about what he was doing this last week. Let's read it and we'll be done. Verse 19 says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law. We see that right, right here. Though he clarifies and says, Though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. And he clarifies, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. In other words, I'm not going crazy. I'm still going to, my life's still going to represent Jesus. That I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Do you feel that? Passion that he has. He says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. Man, Paul had a heart for people. Do we have that heart? I don't. But I want to. Do you have that heart? 
I don't know how many people are in our room today. But every one of you is a missionary to be sent out of these doors and make a difference wherever you live, wherever you work, wherever you go. If you have a heart for Jesus, the Holy Spirit can use you. He can give you opportunities to speak up, to stand up, to to help someone who's struggling. God wants to use you if you have a heart for people. Man, Paul's heart. He was submitted to God. He was willing to sacrifice everything to make Jesus known and to be obedient to him. But not only that, he was willing to be submissive to other men, right? How are you doing in the area of submission? <laughs> like when I even say that word, or are you sitting here going, uh, nope. Man, maybe you've been burned. Maybe you have scars and wounds and you've been hurt. Maybe it was a parent. Maybe it was a boss. Maybe it was a spouse. Maybe it was a pastor, maybe it was a church, I don't know. But can I tell you, just because we have those wounds, it doesn't uh, negate or take away the truth of God's word. And for us to be a people of God, for us to be Jesus-loving believers, we gotta come to the place of submission. Because submission is all about trust. You can't control everything. You can't control that you'll never be hurt again. You can't, but you can trust a God who heals. You can trust a God who saves. You can trust a God who is before you in your relationships and in your life. He's trustworthy. How are you doing in submission? Maybe today you just need to say, God, I realize this is an area of weakness for me. I don't trust you or people enough to submit to you or to them. May God change our hearts to trust him, to trust his people, to trust his church, to trust him and his word. You know, I, I love our city groups. I love the heart and vision behind what those groups represent. It's not just a Bible study. It's not just a place to come and learn something. It's a place to come and be something. It's a place to come and do life. It's a place to come and be known, not be perfect. What a beautiful place to submit your life to other people. What has God spoken to you today in this message? I don't know. But I pray that he would use this time in his word to make us more like Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, how good you are. Lord, if there's one person in this room today that doesn't know you as their Savior, Holy Spirit of the living God, would you, would you just grab their hearts? Would you help them to see that they don't know you, Lord? Help them to see that separation, that dividing. God, if there's one person here that doesn't know you, would you please minister to them and draw them to yourself? Even in this time as we pray, as we sing, Lord, I pray that their heart can't stand to stay where they are, that they have to find out what it, what it takes to know you. Lord, that they would come and speak to me or another elder and, and surrender their control 
their lives and they would submit themselves to you. Jesus, would you save somebody today? Spirit of the living God, would you move in somebody today to do that? And God, for the rest of us that know you, we're all about control. We're all about, nobody's gonna hurt me again. But the reality is, it's gonna happen again. We will be hurt. Bad things happen in a fallen world, but you are good. And you love us and you have a plan, God, to use us for your glory if we can just let go. If we can just trust, if we can just submit ourselves to you, Lord to be obedient to you, to walk into the dark seasons of life sometimes and be obedient to submit ourselves to people around us. That's called the church, that you've given us this beautiful gift of the church. You say in Ephesians 4, let me tell you about some gifts I've given you. Lord, this church is full of gifts, full of people who are gifts one to another. And may we submit to you, Lord, because it pleases you and it changes us. God, for any person today who is struggling, they're questioning, they're mourning, they're hurting, may they find hope in you because there's not hope anywhere else, Lord. You're the only one who satisfies our soul. So in this time as we pray and as we sing, may we lay it all down, Jesus. And may you meet us right where we are. We pray in your perfect and wonderful name. Amen.